And welcome to episode three of the Hammer Time Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Hammerman. Thanks so much for listening to my first couple episodes if you have. If you haven't, definitely listen to them because they were really great and tonight's going to be great as well. Just so you know how this podcast is structured, we have three different segments. The first segment's the sports segment where we talk about things going on in the world of balls and bats and pads and whatever else have you. The second segment, Society, where we talk about what's going on in the world around us, going on with the people, the major cultural events, and our own beliefs, and how we relate to the world through that lens. And the final segment is the Stuff segment, which is going to be completely random, and we can pretty much talk about whatever we want. And my guest tonight is someone who is a really good friend of mine, Really acclaimed writer, had a TV spot in Minnesota this past year, I believe, as well. Writer for the Daily Norseman, all kinds of other things. Arif Hassan is here to... So, I guess we're going to start to talk about sports, and the Minnesota Vikings are one of my favorite teams in the NFC. They have one of my favorite young quarterbacks in Teddy Bridgewater, who's become quite a lightning rod in terms of the takes that are surrounding him. The Vikings started out this year really well, and now they're at 8-5. and five. They're sort of plodding along. What do we think of them right now? Uh, I think it's, like, tough because they lost uh, three of their last four to them in, like, uh, big fashion. So I think a lot of people are like, oh, they're the, the frauds we thought they were. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people in Minnesota have kind of, like, internalized that, too. But, you know. They're a good team. They're a playoff quality team, and they're just kind of inconsistent. And I think that comes with being a very, very young team. So, pretty good. Uh, you know, not the Cardinals or anything, but pretty good. That's my I, thought. I mean, I'll be honest. I've watched a good number of Vikings games, and the team does look pretty good, other than the offensive line. That really does need to have a massive yeah. overhaul in the next year. Teddy Bridgewater really gets no time in the pocket whatsoever, and when he does actually get a second, he moves it pretty well. It makes some really nice intermediate throws. I've seen him throw some ropes that I'm not sure every other quarterback in the game can make, and he doesn't have the best arm, and his touchdown numbers aren't the greatest, but your touchdown numbers are going to slip a little bit when you have Adrian Peterson on your team, so I don't really think that should be completely held against him. What do you think of his progression for year one to year two? Yeah, no, I expected uh, more from him as a sophomore, too. And, you know, for a, you know, for a while, I think, you know, we were kind of tricked by the last five games of the season, uh, his rookie year, because, I mean, they were astounding, I think. He had the best or second-best passer rating in the league, and, you know, it looked like that kind of on the film that he was, you know, throwing these dimes and not just, you know, 10-yard slants, but, like, corners and deep routes and stuff like that. And so you, you don't see that in the next year. You're kind of concerned. Some of that's the offensive line. Uh, some of that, I think, is North Turner. I don't know, man. You see you see all of these uh, you see all of these teams with really bad offensive lines, and I think it's actually, you know, much worse this year than it has been most years. Uh, you know, Teddy's been under pressure uh, 47 or, or however many percent of snaps, uh, you know, his dropbacks this season, and that's the most in pro football focus history. Uh, so that goes all the way back to 2007. Um, and it's gotten so bad, actually, that there's a bunch of bad offensive lines, say in Indianapolis, Seattle. Um, but, you know, for, for whatever reason, you know, other offensive coordinators have started shortening their drops and, and having, you know, reducing depth of target. It's a big part of Russell Wilson's success in Seattle is that the offensive coordinator at level has changed things. That hasn't really happened except in the Cardinals game, uh, where we saw, you know, uh, you know, shorter drops and stuff like that. And Teddy looked great in that game. So, um, you know, 
some of it, I think, is Teddy. You know, I think his mechanics have degraded a little bit because uh, they wanted to quicken his release, and it's been an inconsistent progress, uh, project for him. Some of it's that offensive line; it's really bad, and some of it's North Turner. And uh, you know, it's 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 not a good confluence of things. You know, I think uh, you know having a low touchdown rate. You know, a lot of that's his fault. A lot of that, I think, is you know uh, there were four drops in the end zone this year. That's pretty significant. And uh, you know, a lot of it's that they. Like inside the ten, they have like the twenty ninth uh, most passes per drop back, and so you know most of the time they just give it to Adrian. So you know, I, I think that touchdown rate is actually surprisingly predictive. I, I think that that's an issue, um, but uh, you know, sort of yards per attempt, and you know people kind of forget yards per attempt are pretty good for a dude his age. Definitely agree with that. And the other thing with Teddy is that I don't think he has really good receivers yet. Stephon Diggs is okay, but I'm not sure he's any better than a number two option in an ideal situation. And Mike Wallace is pretty much a nice field stretcher, but inconsistent at best. And Charles Johnson has also proven to be maybe a little bit of a flash in the pan. What do you think the Vikings need to do in next year's offseason to take the next step in your mind? Yeah, I think um, I think they got a guy who uh, they got to get a guy who like wins the ball. They have nobody who wins contested catches. Uh, and so it's like really difficult for uh, Eddie to be able to make some of those throws because he knows his receivers won't come away with it. I mean, he made you know two or three throws that uh, were, were perfect contested uh, catch situations uh, in the Cardinals game, and, and the receivers came down with it zero times. That includes Stephon Diggs, who's got you know better ball skills than anyone else on the roster, and that's like kind of sad. You know, getting muscled out by Patrick Peterson this year is like not anything to be ashamed of, but you know if if you can't win those contested catches, and, you know, those are usually, you know, according to Matt Harmon's, you know, reception perception data, those are those are closer to 65 70% of the time in favor of, you know, the wide receiver, the guy who's paid to catch the ball. Uh, and, you know, Charles Johnson, he was up like 27% last year. Uh, you know, Michael Wallace is, you know, surprisingly, you know, better at it, but he's still not at league average. You know, Stephon Diggs, I suspect, is not around league average. So that really limits the number of throws that you can make and trust your receivers to – to make those, so I think that the the next step isn't necessarily to invest in the offensive line in the first round, although obviously you know those kind of investments are necessary. I think it's to get a receiver who can uh, just win the ball. I mean, you can you can account for the offensive line in various ways, uh, and you know the two two of the the injured offensive linemen are not healthy. I mean, it's John Sullivan, Phil Lodehold, uh to the best of their position, at least at some point in their career, uh, and Brandon Fusco is just unusually awful this year. So I think you know. That might regress to the mean uh, to some respect, but like, and you can you can account for him play calling, but like if you if you don't have receivers who can win the ball, and I don't know. I think the guy to keep an eye on for the Vikings is Josh Doxson from TCU. He's somebody who Absolutely. got injured this year, but really does well at the catch point. A little bit of an older receiver compared to a lot of the young bucks in this class, but he really could fill that need that Teddy should be looking toward in terms of a deep threat who can win those 50-50 catches. I think we saw it last year with Allen Robinson, where even though his stats weren't the best, he was winning those 50-50 balls, and then you see this year, Robinson and Bortles both took a step forward, and Robinson's probably one of the 10 best receivers in the league, at least by my money. So looking back at that quarterback class, though, in a vacuum, who would you take as your quarterback? Bridgewater, Carr, Bortles, or Manziel? <laughs> Johnny's looked a lot better than a lot of people are saying. 
Um, but I would take Derek Carr. I don't think that'd be much of a question. He's my number two quarterback, so there's not really a bunch of professional pride for me on the line in terms of like evaluation. Um, and I thought he was a first round guy, and he's looking like it uh, this year. I was really concerned about him, you know, last year, and you know, he played an offense that was much like the Fresno offense, not suited to his skill set. Um, but this year he was able to let it go, and it's looking good. And I think sort of later in the year, you know, sort of as the, as the stretch of, of the year moves on, he's not looking as good as he did earlier on in the year, but I think that he's probably the best of them. Um, Bortles is just really difficult for me to figure out because I think it's impossible to – I think, you know, Jaguars Twitter was making, you know, some really good points about this. It's, it is impossible to ignore – uh, you know, his touchdown rate, his yards per attempt, um, you know, I think those are both worth the interception rate that he's putting up uh, for sure. Um, and it, it's really impossible to ignore that there's just production, and the production is driven in large part by him. Like, yeah, he's got some skilled receivers, but, you know, he knows how to use them, and you can't fault a dude for knowing that. But when I when I look at him from, like, an evaluator's eye, he always just seems so slow in making decisions, and, it, and it, I don't know, he just seems uncomfortable in the pocket, and from a film perspective, I just don't like what I see, but I kind of have to discount it over the propensity of evidence that I have. And so I would probably have to say that Bortles is playing better than Teddy this year by, by a sub-margin. But I think that I maybe it's just the style of quarterbacking I prefer. I'm like a Peyton Manning kind of guy. But, yeah, I, I, I think that, that Teddy is the guy I would rather choose for the long haul. And, and he's, like, younger, right? So See, it's funny because Teddy actually – Reminds me less of Peyton Manning and a little bit more of Tom Brady. Just because I think a lot of the hidden yards in his game that really come to bear are when he throws the ball away instead of taking the sack. Or when he scans the field and sees no one come open and then doesn't make a stupid throw that I think Bortles would make. I think a lot of those quarterbacks, Carr and Bortles, and maybe even Teddy at this point, in terms of upside, Carr and Bortles are the kinds of guys who could win a Super Bowl, will make playoffs, but might not be consistent enough to ever make that next step. And we've seen a lot of those in this era. It does seem like, other than Peyton or Brady, or I guess Big Ben, maybe Aaron Rodgers, although the jury is still out on him to a degree, because he's only won one Super Bowl, surprisingly. But we can't say this for sure. I mean, I think he's pretty elite, but who knows? And I guess Eli Manning, speaking of elite, <laughs> and Russell Wilson. That, Eli Manning's an interesting case just because it's his inconsistency is the reason that uh, he was able to win a Super Bowl. Because if he played at his average level of play constantly, they would never win a Super Bowl. Uh, but but Eli is inconsistent enough that his spikes have been able to to get him too. So that's I, I consider him an unusual. Eli might be the best example of someone from that group succeeding and becoming a perennial Super Bowl quarterback because he is so inconsistent. I mean, Bortles has lost some games this year by himself. He's been better this year for sure, but there are games when that team could not move the ball whatsoever. And even Carr has had some issues this year because he has put the team on his back a lot, and Carr's placement on passes is gorgeous. I think it's probably the best out of that group, but I don't think that he makes the same decisions that Teddy does. So they all definitely win in different ways. I'm still pretty bullish on all of them. I will say about Teddy, he hasn't had a signature win yet, and I'm waiting for that to happen. A signature comeback where we say, this is Teddy Bridgewater. This is where he defeated a better opponent. I think that last week could have been that game, I think it's unfortunate 
that it didn't end up being that game. But he did play well last week for sure. So that, that win is going to come in week 17 against the Packers. Definitely. I mean, that's the goal, beat the Packers, your division anyway. So we're going to pivot a little bit because I know you're also a Minnesota college football fan, and I wanted to talk Golden Gophers for a minute. So you watch this team on a pretty consistent basis. Uh, are there any prospects on this team that are interesting, or is it pretty much just your run-of-the-mill Big Ten, we're going to pound you in the college game, but we're not quite athletic enough for the pros kind of guys? It's interesting because you know Minnesota tends to produce um, an athletic freak like once a once every year or so, which is like weird. And sometimes those athletic freaks are not highly like Damian Williams, linebacker. You know, he wasn't a, a huge draft prospect. I think he went uh, in the seventh round or undrafted. Um, so it's not like the athletic freaks always produce. But you know, they've always got you know they've always got somebody who's super athletic. And I think uh, this year it's somebody who can't declare. Um, it's uh, Stephen Richardson. Who uh, you know, it's really interesting because uh, they they do the same thing with Rashid Hageman is that they put him on like a, a pretty aggressive rotation schedule. Um, so you know, we'll we'll see how he turns out. But I think Josh Campion, the offensive tackle, a lot of people were talking about him. Uh, he hasn't been able to show up this year, so he's probably going late. A lot of people talked about KJ May. I don't see it. I don't. I, I would be surprised if he made a practice squad. Uh, the two people that people are talking about are Body Calhoun and Eric Murray. Uh, who I imagine um, are sort of like mid-roundish prospects. I don't really, I'm not as deep a fan of the Minnesota Gophers as I am of uh, basically any professional team. I just, I can't uh, invest the time or energy to, to know that much about them. So I'm just a super casual fan. But those are the names uh, that kind of stand out to me. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, there, there's some guys that I think play really well, but, you know, people aren't talking about. And I don't know if that's because I'm evaluating them incorrectly, if they're too young, or whatever, but this walk-on, Ayinde, uh, who's going to get a scholarship for next year, looks really good. Um, he's not going to declare or anything like that. Uh, and then the the two uh, running backs that they have, uh, Roger Williams and Shannon Brooks, are super fun to watch. I don't know if that means they're good, but super fun to watch. I was going to actually ask you about Shannon Brooks, because I've watched a few games this year, and he is a little bit like Amir Abdullah. He breaks so many tackles, and he has a lot of dynamic ability in the open field. Definitely somebody to watch moving forward. And I remember I liked watching Brian Body Calhoun, the cornerback. He definitely has some upside. So you're saying Stephen Richardson, defensive tackle, somebody to keep an eye on moving forward? Yeah, for next year because he can't declare this year. But, yeah, and I think uh, I think uh, Justice even identified him as a potential possible force player. So that will be fun to watch. Well, then we know that he'll have Justice's support and – in contrast, all of draft Twitter's rage. Yeah, he'll, he'll draw some hate. <laughs> so, speaking of Minnesota, though, I wanted to talk about Jerry Kill, the longtime coach there who just resigned for health-related reasons. And I think you may have had your finger on the pulse of the situation a little bit more than me with the entire Jerry Kill, A.J. Barker incident. So, I'm going to give a little bit of context to this. A.J. Barker was a wide receiver, a walk-on for Minnesota, who eventually, I believe, earned a scholarship and was their leading receiver. And he alleged that he was bullied into quitting the Minnesota Golden Gophers uh, because he was an avowed atheist, and he was ridiculed by coaches, including Coach Kill, for his beliefs. So, since you are located a little bit closer to this than me, and it seems like the story has taken an interesting turn where Barker's become a little bit less sympathetic in terms of his story. 
What do you think Kill's legacy is going to be at Minnesota? Do you think that this will have any impact on it, or do you think it's mostly going to be limited toward his performance on the field? Uh, yeah, um, I, I don't think this will have a huge impact uh, on on Kill's like sort of legacy, if you will, uh, in Minnesota. So I, I was initially super sympathetic to AJ Barker. I tend to be pretty sympathetic to uh, you know students in these situations because I think that there's you know not a lot of um, credit given to them about things that, that are often very true. Uh, but I think, you know, the more I heard about it, the more I talked to people, uh, the more it just seemed like uh, Barker was, I hate saying this, Barker was like looking for offense, if you will. Uh, and so he read into things that that either weren't there or were just like sort of inelegant. I mean, they're coaches, right? They're not like orators, and so they'll say things kind of inelegantly sometimes, uh, and he would just read into things that weren't there, uh, and, you know, there, there's pressure on, um, one of the things that he alleged is that, you know, they would hurry him back from injury, make him feel bad that he was injured and stuff like that, and there's pressures on, on, on players to uh, to get back from injury, but he would allege that it was an unusual amount of pressure, and, you know, whether or not that pressure is good, I think that's a separate discussion, but I think that he wasn't subjected to any unusual uh, pressure in terms of coming back from injury. I just think that, you know, he thought that this was unfair, and then he thought that, which is probably true, um, but he thought that that unfairness was kind of unique to him, which is probably not true. So, yeah, I don't think it's going to have much of an impact. People don't really talk about it that much uh, with regards to, to Jerry Kill. Um, so, yeah, it's, 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 not, it's not like, you know, what happened at uh, Illinois or whatever. Also, Kill was a better coach than Beckman, so... Makes sense in that regard as well. So moving on from Minnesota football, we're going to talk about soccer to end up the sports phase of this podcast. So we actually did a soccer podcast last year before the World Cup, and it was me, you, our friend Darren Page, and Dusty, right? Yeah, and Dusty. Dusty was more of like a, a facilitator in that discussion. So on that podcast we talked about State of American Soccer. And I remember that I think we all were pretty bullish on the future. We all really liked where Klinsman was bringing the team. Now that we have a little bit more time to take a step back, you know, we're not going to be at the Confederations Cup, which is bad. The Olympics are coming up soon. How do we think American Soccer is currently headed? Uh, I guess, I guess, and I... I have my pulse on it uh, the way like I'm all or, or Darren do, but yeah, I guess uh, my enthusiasm has, has tamped down, but I don't think the arrow is pointing anywhere but up. I just think that it's not as clearly or obviously up, and I think that, you know, I initially thought that, you know, maybe Klinsman has the ability to overcome a lot of like the cultural barriers and the systematic and structural barriers that, that exist that would make it very difficult for uh, Americans to succeed on a global scale. But I don't think that he has that ability, but I also don't think that there's really another solution, So, uh, which isn't pessimistic. I think that he, he's probably pretty good. I think missing the Confederations Cup is a huge uh, problem. Um, it's like a black mark. Uh, but, you know, I think that him being aggressive about finding uh, exciting young athletic talent and showcasing them uh, is, you know, is great. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of, 
you know, interesting and exciting people that are coming up that are really young. I, I don't know the names of all of them. I've been exposed to the names and I've been exposed to a couple of games uh, for all of them. Um, and I, I just kind of forgot all of them. But they're they're all like super raw, super young, uh, really athletic people uh, that Klinsman uh, is willing to like mold and stuff like that. And who knows if it'll work out or anything like that. But um, I guess I guess it's kind of like the Wolves. They're probably not going to win anything anytime soon, but it's pretty exciting to watch. I wonder if, as you said, those really young players are going to buy him another four years. Because in my mind, his benchmark, this cycle of his contract, was to make the round of eight right. in the World Cup. And with this squad that I'm seeing, I'm not sure that they have the capability to do that as of yet. And I know it's really hard to do, but this is a team that was in the group of death last World Cup, should have been first in the group, if we're being honest. And they then lost in overtime to a really, really tough Belgian side. Looking at the team as constituted in recent friendlies and players I'm seeing now, I haven't seen a ton of progression from a lot of the players that I thought would sort of have stepped up, namely DeAndre Yedlin. So I think it'll be intriguing to see how Klinsman proceeds, but... The Olympics will tell me a lot. I think there is some excitement with the likes of Jordan Morris. As you said, Zellalem, Hinman, these are good players. Maybe they make an impact, maybe they don't. Hopefully the squad crystallizes a little bit in future games and we sort of get a sense of what's to come for Team USA. So, we are now going to go on to the society portion of this podcast. <laughs> Which Arif is like, Arif? Sorry, I I used to always call you Arif, and I always was mad at myself because then I learned it was Arif, so I will call you Arif. Which Arif is excited about because which which Arif is excited about because Arif did not often get to talk politics on podcasts. To start, why don't you give us a sense of your political worldview? Um, I guess uh, man, it sounds so cliche to say you know the world's like super complicated. Um, but yeah, I think that, I think that overall, uh, you know, a lot of the way that we, we look at politics tends to be in terms of, uh, you know, problem solution, which is like, you know, great for like, you know, short term problems and fixes and stuff like that. Um, but I think that a lot of our political problems stem from like systemic things, like the way, uh, societies are structured either fairly or unfairly or intentionally or not. So I think that, there's like a superstructure of class and a superstructure of race and a superstructure of gender that kind of influences all of our interactions. And I think that that's why, you know, politics, you look at it from like a policy level or a policymaking perspective, um, that kind of only deals with one prong of the problems that, that today are, are politically super important because, you know, what are the most important, you know, political issues? You know, uh, you could say, you know, it's like gun control and abortion and, you know, police brutality, and those are policy-level ways of looking at things. But I think that, you know, fundamentally underneath a lot of those things, um, there's like a, a cultural current of like the way that we legitimize violence, you know, whether or not that uh, legitimization of violence has to do uh, entirely with, uh, you know, hyper-masculine culture or whatever, or, you know, in, in the case of police brutality, you know, race, um, you know, when you talk about abortion, you know, the real question is about, uh, you know, A, obviously, like, biological definitions of life, but B, sort of the way that, you know, we talk about and think about reproductive rights and, uh, you know, women and, 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 you know, things like that in society, and that's related to, 
you know, trans rights and gay rights and, and all that, those are all kind of related to gender identity, and those are all politics, and those are all things that, you know, occur at macro-political levels and are expressed through policies, but, you know, a lot of these policies tend to be preventative, like, you know, ENDA, for example, like the, the Non-Discrimination Act for uh, Employment. You know, that's a policy-level solution to, you know, a social problem, and I'm not saying we shouldn't pass those laws, but I think that uh, a lot of our understanding of politics tends to occur at this macro level when a lot of political things are are structural, and we don't tend to address the structure that much. You know, I'm, I'm like pretty – I'm obviously, you know, uh, pretty far left in, in, in that regard and that I think that all these structures are real, all these structures cause problems, uh, and all of these structures kind of, you know – are, are things that need to be addressed in ways that tend to help people who are characterized as oppressed. Uh, and so, you know, I think that class is a problem, and I think that the way that we think about class, uh, you know, infects the way that we think about gender and infects the way that we think about race. They all kind of interact with each other in this super messy, complicated, you know, whatever, and, uh, you know, we should, we should address some of the structural problems, the structural solutions uh, and, and policy-level solutions, but also... Uh, you know, that the, a lot of the politics, you know, happens on, like, moments when we hear about news and react to it. Like, you know, a player uh, is, uh, you know, is accused of domestic violence. And I think that's a really political moment when we hear that news. And, you know, our first reaction is uh, either, you know, did she provoke it? Or, you know, you know who, do, who do I trust in terms of testimony? What, what sort of what sort of structure of testimony tends to tend to trust who? Like, how, uh, what process do we get to the point where we actually even hear about a domestic violence case? It's usually a bunch of barriers, and that and the fact that it has to get to that many barriers kind of flips the valence on like sort of you know who said who and who said what and who to trust in that kind of situation. So yeah, I don't know. There's like there's a lot of systems at play, and I think that the first discussion is about systems, and that the next discussion is about policy. And we tend to talk about policy a lot. I found that super fascinating. I think your point about the domestic violence reaction, when you hear that an athlete has committed an act of domestic violence, is super intriguing, especially since I think another component that also plays into it is the implicit fan bias. Is he on your team? Is she on your team? I know that there are certain people who I have seen who when certain acts are committed by people who they may agree with or people who they root for, they are more likely to give them the benefit of the doubt than if it's somebody who is just a third party on another team, which I find extremely structurally intriguing from the standpoint that how do these biases and to what effect do these biases, is there something quantifiable how do they affect the way that we think and how can we work better to limit them in terms of looking at situations objectively? Yeah. And it's, it's really tough because like, I I mean, you're dealing with humans and humans have like, they, sometimes they'll choose their biases. Like if you are a fan, you have a vested interest in, in, you know, whatever. And it is actually, it's super difficult to break out. Even if you know that you've invested interest in a certain outcome it's super difficult to identify all the parts of your thought process when you process this information, uh, if it's a member of your team or a member of, like, even even more than just another team, but, like, let's say a rival team, right? 
Uh, I mean, all parts of your thought process are impacted by this. I, I, like, it's kind of insidious. Like, you you tend to be just you just are more skeptical of claims for for you know accusations that have to do with your team, even if you know that that's going to be the case and you try to fight against it. So, you know, when we talk about this, like sometimes we just kind of have to acknowledge, like, yeah, uh, you're you're being biased because you're a fan. But I get that, we're like human, and like sports fandom is ultimately, probably, I mean, I guess I don't know because evolutionary psychology is kind of a bunk science, but it, it probably has to do with like the way that we think of like tribal affiliations and stuff like that, and we're kind of like conditioned to think a, you know, a certain way. And so sometimes that, you know, that impacts the way that we evaluate it, sometimes the way that society has structured itself, you know, in terms of like language and acts and thoughts and stuff like that, you know, it, you know change or interact. Like, for example, when Stephen A. Smith just kind of instinctively blames the victim in, like, basically every possible, you know, configuration of violence, uh, you know, that, a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, the structures of societies and, and the way that, you know, we, we tend to privilege certain kinds of information or certain kinds of acts over other kinds of information or other kinds of acts. But, you know, sometimes it's just as simple as, yeah, I chose to be a fan of the Vikings to, to the extent that I can choose that. Uh, and uh, and I'm just going to be a little bit more sympathetic, you know, especially if the player helps the team. Like if it's Chris Cook and he's already kind of, you know, somebody who, who hurts the team, then it's a lot easier for me to be like, yeah, that dude's a shithead. Um, but like, you know, if it's Adrian Peterson, suddenly we start having a more nuanced and complicated discussion about, you know, corporal punishment or whatever. Uh, even though if we heard it, you know, from like, let, let's say it was like Eddie Lacy, yeah, our discussion would not be nearly as nuanced, at least on the Viking side and on Vikings Twitter. And the fact that, you know, sometimes that's good because, you know, sometimes you need sympathy for people who are the products of, you know, the environment that they grow up in. But, you know, a lot of times it's bad. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, it, it's good to be, like, skeptical of things, but it's also good to be kind of aware of the direction that your skepticism is coming from, and sometimes these biases are, are super big, like, you know, race and gender and class, and sometimes they're super small, like, you know, I'm a fan of the team, or we share the same name, or, you know, whatever, right? Two thoughts jumping off of that. First of all, I think it's really interesting that you mentioned Stephen A. Smith, because Stephen A. Smith is someone who openly has disavowed certain biases about his race, and I love how you sort of intertwine that with the concept of his biases regarding domestic violence. Because Stephen A. Smith openly says, I am not like other black people. I am politically conservative. He said it on multiple occasions. He says that Mark Levin, who's a crazy, pardon my bias, <laughs> talk show host, is one of his best friends. And he's openly said, I am putting myself in this corner. This is what I believe in. Uh, he went on Mark Levine's show, and he said, other people of my race are scared to come on your show because they don't think you have anything worth saying, but that's me. I'm the one who thinks that you have something worth saying. So I think that that's a good point of how you can try to outrun certain biases, but that type of thinking always comes into play no matter what situation. In sports, it's really translated over into politics. I mean, you think about how the Founding Fathers originally created the presidential system, for example, where the top vote-getter for president would get that title, and the second vote-getter would become the vice president, regardless of party. And that ideally would create a solid conversation of different ideas, 
and the ability to compromise on those ideas in order to create policy to better run the country from all different vantage points. You have Abraham Lincoln who created a cabinet of people who disagreed with him vehemently and still was able to accomplish certain things, although maybe not quite as much as certain history books would like for you to believe. Now we live in a time where I really think that politics has become sports. You have two teams. You have the red team, you have the blue team, and these teams are just bitter rivals. They are the Red Sox and the Yankees, and I'll let Red Sox and Yankees fans pick which team is which. That really is what we're living in now, where there is no room for compromise, for thought outside of two paradigms. And I think when our current president came into office, the line was drawn in the sand by one of the teams where they said, we're literally just not going to talk to the other side. So I guess jumping off that, one of my questions would be, what do you think of this current political system that we have and how do you think it can be made better? I don't know if there's a way to feasibly you know, make it better because to me, and I've thought this for a while, one of the fundamental problems is, I mean, you kind of mentioned at the very beginning, it's kind of the past the post system. You know, you're right. It, it is kind of sports and that someone has to win and someone has to lose. And I think that there are a lot of other uh, political methods for, you know, determining, you know, uh, your political representation in a national body um, that do a better job of, A, increasing the diversity of views, but B, decreasing, you know, polarity. I don't know if, if you know, because people have been saying this country's been getting, like, more polarizing for years. My guess is that it's about as polarized as it was uh, at the end of the 90s. I don't think it's gotten any more polarized. And, then, you know, obviously it's a short period of time. Um, but I, I, I think that it's just kind of the structural nature of, you know, one person has to win an election and one person has to lose an election. It becomes a game of moving over 10 windows that is producing sort of the best policy. So if you move, you know all the way extremely to the right or the left, uh, the middle moves to the right or the left. It's super weird social science, and it's kind of true. It's not as true as Glenn Beck wants you to believe, but it's still kind of true uh, that, you know, if, if, if you have, I don't want to say operatives, but if there are people in the party who move the discussion nationally, and there are different ways to move discussions, the Republicans used to be very good at it, uh, and then, uh, you know, the, the Democrats discovered kind of new science about this, and they became really good at it for a while. Um, but, you know, if you have the ability to move the discussion to the right or the left, uh, you know, sort of your true goal, as it were, um, you know, is, is easier to accomplish because the middle moves to the right or the left. And if we know that, then we also know uh, that, you know, the rhetoric, the dominant rhetoric uh, should be to move to the right or the left, which sucks, right, because now we don't have real conversations. Um I just so happen to be on an extreme end of one of the spectrums. I happen to be very far left. And so it is not weird to me to hear, you know, let's say Bernie Sanders say all the stuff that he says. Because, you know, aside from the fact that he was very late on and kind of perfunctory in in the context of race and to a large degree on gender, you know, I agree with a lot of what he has to say about class. And, you know, I don't care if people accuse him of class warfare or whatever. Um... But, you know, he is kind of, and maybe it's because of the, the economic situation the country found itself in, 2008, 2009, uh, that, it, that it is a little bit more, I don't know, if, I don't want to say reasonable, but palatable uh, to a lot of people. But, uh, you know, for 40 years, you know, he was all the way on the left, but he's not very good at messaging. He's not very good at getting his voice across, so he wasn't able to move, you know, the Overton window to the right and the left. Uh, and so, to me, this extreme isn't that extreme, but I think to most people, 
and to a lot of reasonable people, you have, you know, Donald Trump on one side and Bernie Sanders on the other side, and they don't believe either of those things, and it's really frustrating because those two seem to be generating the most headlines. Um, you know, who knows? But yeah, I think that I think that knowing that only one side can win and knowing that you can move the meter to the right or the left by being as extreme as possible are huge problems. I think both of those problems are solved with proportional representation based off of votes in a multi-party system, kind of like what Germany has. I was about to ask you about that, so we're going to just skip that question. And we're going to talk about another subject. The refugee situation is really heating up right now. Immigration is a super hot topic in this country. You mentioned Donald Trump, who said, if you're an exchange student who happens to be Muslim overseas and want to come home for Thanksgiving, you might not be able to do that. What are your thoughts? Because you have a very unique perspective on this compared to me, because I've never had to face a lot of, or any xenophobia. What are your thoughts on the situation right now with how xenophobic the rhetoric of the Republican Party seems to be? People like Donald Trump get people with my name killed. I have no sympathy for that man. Um, I mean, there, there are people who die. I've, I, I know people who've been the subject of violence because of their names or because of the color of their skin, and these incidences of violence increase when you have xenophobic rhetoric by people like Ann Coulter or Donald Trump. Uh, and so I the, – the idea that a terrorist could come in and hurt the country is so abstract compared to the idea that when you talk about it and the way that you talk about it, obviously terrorism is like an issue. We, there's a pretty good debate on like sort of where on that list of issues it should be. Um, because, you know, obviously it's sort of been, you know, weaponized political rhetoric, and as a result, we were just talking about this, as a result, it moves to the top of the list when maybe it shouldn't be, but the way that we talk about terrorism, and specifically when we uh, either dog whistle or explicitly say that it has to do with a particular religious or ethnic background, you, you don't have to participate specifically in hate speech so much as you incite it and sort of wink and nod at it. Um, but, I mean, I, I don't even need to say this, but it's true. I mean, there are studies that indicate that a rise in xenophobic rhetoric leads to a rise in hate speech, which leads to a rise in violence. And so to say there's a possibility that a terrorist could come in and hurt people um, in a manner, like when you say it like that, is ridiculous to me because saying it the way that Donald Trump says it leads to actual people getting hurt, like right now. And so... Like, the terrorism is already here. It just doesn't happen to be, you know, brown-on-white violence. It very often ends up being white-on-brown violence. So my perspective on Donald Trump is that he can get fucked because people are dying because of him. So, And, I mean, I think that the point that you bring up where this rhetoric inspires some really wild initiatives to take place. I mean, you heard about what happened in Texas recently where there was a mock mass shooting on the University of Texas at Austin campus. I don't understand how people could think that this is productive. And the other thing that I don't understand how people could possibly not see the parallels is when guys like Donald Trump are calling for all Muslims in this country to wear a Muslim identifier insignia on their clothing. Are you stupid? Do you know what the Holocaust was? It's this concept that because these people are white and old, 
they can see through any sort of veil that anyone could possibly pull over on them. This happened the same exact way with a lot of the anti-gay legislation in Mississippi and in Indiana and other states too, where store owners could potentially block gay people from buying things in their store because they could protest them on their religious beliefs. But what happens the first time a store owner, and let's be frank, a lot of these people who own the stores who might invoke this particular law might not be the most perceptive people in the world. What happens when they make a mistake? What happens if they accidentally target someone who's heterosexual and say, you're gay, I'm not going to serve you in my store? I mean, the state's got to get sued or something, right? It's like, how can these people use their prejudice to create these rules that, even in terms of face value, the basic question of a law is whether or not it's enforceable. These laws aren't enforceable. I don't understand how people could possibly think that, that those would be legal and that they would be possible laws. That's all I got to say about that. I mean, like, I mean, so, I mean, Trump was even asked, like, how would you enforce, like, a ban on foreign Muslims entering the country? He was like, well, you know, you have a customs agent asking if they're Muslim. Uh, and, like, the people most likely to lie about that are terrorists, so, you know, good luck, man. Um, but, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's not a way to enforce a lot of, 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 of these laws and a lot of way to enforce, you know, a lot of this from a policymaking perspective, but it definitely has a huge impact socially. So talking about a law, even though you're not going to implement it or, or enforce it, uh, has a bigger effect on, um, on the way that people act than actually implementing a law. So that seems to be sort of, I don't know if that's a goal because I don't know what Donald Trump's goal really is, but that seems to be the ultimate impact because the law itself, that's not going to matter. It's how people uh, act in regards to discussions about it that matter a lot more. So, yeah, I mean, and, and you're right, there's a lot of parallels to, uh, to you know, the, the rise of Hitler and, and Nazi Germany, but I think that, I think that that's a really important thing to bring up, um, but I think that uh, the the effects are far are, are much more immediate than what could potentially happen in six years if we continue to let it, uh, let this happen. Because I mean, the effects are happening now, and you should probably just you know stop violence as soon as you can in any respect, and not just have to talk about the Holocaust. Because at that point, the only impact is is the Holocaust. And so we've got, like, five years to stop it. When really violence is happening now, we should stop it now. You know what I mean? Like, does that make sense? Yeah. I I do think the Holocaust gets invoked a little bit quickly in a lot of cases when well, I was speaking to it. the fairest invocation, but yeah, you're right. It tends to get invoked pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, I was only using it as a parallel to the actual labels on clothes, but I totally understand, and sometimes, you know, I have to take a step back and think about what I'm saying when I'm framing situations, because I'm only speaking from my experience, and that's why I like having people with diverse perspectives come on and talk to me, because they open my eyes to different ways of thinking about things, which is great. So now, for a special surprise, we're going to play a game. It is a classic game. It is called Fuck, Kill, or Marry. And I'm going to give you three names, and you're going to have to pick one to fuck, one to kill, and one to marry. And I promise you, this actually isn't that hard. I'll be interested to see if you pick the same order that I picked. 
So, Carly Fiorina, Sarah Palin, and Michelle Bachman. Holy crap. Oh my gosh. Alright. Well, and this is tough because, like, Fiorina is, like, riding on the coattails of being a moderate when she's not. Uh, and so she's, like, secretly far, far more radical than, but, I mean, like, it's Michelle Bachman. So, <laughs> I would, good lord, this is tough. Um, I, I guess, I guess I would marry Carly Fiorina, and it's just a question of who I would kill. Kill Palin and Mary Bachman. God, that felt weird, man. First of all, that is tough, but you also said married to two of them. You have to pick one of them to fuck. Oh, sorry, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, fuck Bachman. Mary Fiorina. Kill Palin. Alright, so I'm very surprised that you picked to not kill Michelle Bachman, because that was the easiest choice for me. I think you marry Fiorina because she has a lot of money. And that's great. And she lives in California, and California could be nice. Bachman is just so damaging and dumb. I would kill her. That would be my choice there. I, I, I just, well, at that point, it's just a question of, like... So, I think Mary Fiorina was easy. Lots of money. Lives in California. Uh, is not a moron. Um, but I, for me, it was, like... Who does it help more to kill more than who would I rather fuck? Like, I just kind of flipped the balance of the question. So, Fair enough. Uh, yeah, so that, that's kind of what, what drove that. So actually, we'll end it on this. Uh, you used to work in politics as an organizer who was trying to keep Bachman from winning re-election in yeah, your... specifically worked in that campaign, yeah. Yeah. So do you have any particularly entertaining stories of what you heard about Michelle Bachman while you're working on that campaign? Because as somebody who used to work in local politics in Rhode Island, I know there there are some stories about those candidates that get around. It's it's um, so I didn't actually get to hear as many stories as, as I thought I would because I worked for uh, a super PAC that arrived really late in the race. Um, so I just didn't get an interact with that many people. But, like, Bachman is, like, super, like, what you see is what you get. Like, I mean, she, I mean, her crazy is very, like, she's very proud of it. And so, like, there's nothing that I heard as a story that was notable enough for me to really remember. There's a lot of details that people might not remember. Like, you know, uh, you know, she, she ran for office because God told her to. Uh, and, oh, um, the people are pretty much... Uh, People are, I guess this is sort of memorable, but I'd kind of thought this before I'd entered uh, the political arena uh, in that race. It, you know, people are pretty sure that her husband's gay. That guy really pisses me off. Like, he really p- angers me because people who are because he runs professing. Because ministry? He is really damaging because I know people who've gone through reparative therapy and it is psychologically one of the most fucked up things that they can do to you. They basically tell you to, as they say in the Book of Mormon, turn it off. They work with your brain to create negative stimuli whenever you see certain exposed parts of people of the same gender as you. It is a horrible experience, and for someone to profess that to other people is 
extremely irresponsible, especially dedicating your life to doing that. And, I mean, it's in the DSM that this is dangerous. It's not legitimate. Yeah, it, it causes PTSD. It increases the likelihood of suicide. Uh, it, it almost assuredly causes depression, which, like, there's very few things that cause depression that aren't chemical. Um, but that's one of them. It's, yeah, it's, it's one of the most fucked up things, uh, programs that you can do to a person that are still, like, done today. It's like, you know, electroshock therapy is done in, in very, very small instances and very, very specific instances, and it's very controlled and it's very difficult to do. Uh, and so it no longer exists as a, as a practice that people do, but reparative therapy is, is about as damaging as electroshock therapy when electroshock therapy is used sort of as a global mechanism for mental illness, but it's still practiced today, which is like, it's just mind boggling. So yeah, that's what her husband does. Um, but yeah, so that, like, that's, that's the extent of the stories that I have about Michelle Bachman is that people are extremely sure that her husband's gay. Um, and, uh, I don't know. Every, I, like, I can't tell the difference between what's a story and what everybody knows because they're basically the same. She's crazy. Well, she is crazy. And on that note, we will end the politics segment and go to stuff. So, in terms of stuff, let's talk about stuff. Talk about stuff. Uh, you were on the debate team. I was on mock trial because I found debate boring. Why do you like debate? Uh, it's, it was the most challenging thing I've ever done. Um, it allowed me to do all kinds of research about anything that I wanted to. Um, it, I initially joined kind of because my brother was on the debate team and I kind of had like this hero worship thing about him. He's like eight years older than me, so it's not like we could fight. So instead I worshiped him. Um, but I stayed in debate because I wanted to prove I was smarter than everyone else. And if that's your goal, then you can't really quit. Um, but I don't know. I liked winning. I liked, uh, I liked the adrenaline, which that's a thing for sure. It's like kind of weird to imagine, but like, I mean, it's, it's, it's hyper competitive and, uh, you, you get to talk to the smartest people in your age group in the country over and over and over again about whatever you want. And, uh, you get to win. I mean, there's a clear win state and, uh, you get to do it like eight times a weekend, every weekend for, like you know four months i love it and i hear that it has also given you some amazing speaking ability in terms of how many words you can speak per minute <laughs> um yeah well so so there's a thing in debate where uh you know the more arguments you have the better it is but there's a constraint on your time limits and so there is an incentive to speak as quickly as you can uh, and because uh, the people who are judging debates are the people who are in debate, uh, it became a norm uh, to be able to speak quicker and quicker and quicker. And so when people speak really quickly, like I'm speaking right now, that's about 180 words a minute. That's pretty quick, and it's not good for radio, right? It's still a little bit too quick for radio. But I was speaking in high school at 400 words per minute and in college at 600 words per minute. I was actually one of the fastest speakers in the country. Um, Unfortunately, you have to have something memorized in order for it to count as a world record, uh, and I wasn't able to memorize enough stuff for me to even attempt that. But, you know, that's kind of a thing that you just think about and don't even attempt anyway. Um, so, yeah, I, I was able to speak at about 600 words per minute. Uh, the world record is something like 620 or something like that. 
uh, yeah, it was one of the fastest speakers in the country. I can't speak that quickly now, but if I'm challenged, I could probably, I could probably still speak faster than most high school debaters. You know, most high school debaters top out at around 350. I'll be honest, I was never a huge fan of debate. I tried it. I got really bored really quickly. I think it was also because it was on Sundays and maybe missed football, which made me really sad. So I switched over to mock trial because that happened during the school day, and then I wouldn't have to miss football on Sundays. But mock trial was fun. I like mock trial. I am pro mock trial for sure. Mock trial has a, a lot of performance elements too that are pretty interesting. I wasn't able to ever do mock trial. I probably would have done that if uh, my high school offered it. So uh, I just did debate instead. I ended up doing nine years, four in high school, five in college, and then I coached it for a couple more years. Awesome. And to end it all off, got to talk about Pokemon because I know that you're a fan. You make some awesome Pokemon photoshops with NFL players. The crazy thing that we both discovered recently, or I guess it was last year, is that the way that Pokemon height and weights are listed in the Pokemon guide make them really, really small. Like, they're about as big as some NFL players. My favorite Pokemon NFL comparison is that Charizard is the same height and weight as Bob Sanders, the former safety for the Indianapolis Colts. <laughs> and you can look that up. You can compare their heights and weights, and it's there in black and white. They are the same size. So, yeah, it's, it's crazy. So they'll, they'll have a bunch of Pokemon that, like, top out at, like, 5'8 or 5'3 or whatever. There's a ton of Pokemon that are under a foot, um, like, you know, like, like Pikachu is like one foot four inches, which kind of like puts Ash into perspective if they were ever going to draw that show to scale. Um, but there are just, it's, it's like a bunch of Pokemon that get to like six feet, six three, and then a, a Pokemon can get like 35 feet tall. Like that, like, there's like, and then there's mountain size. Like, it's just, it's like weird. You've got a bunch of small ones or ones that are human size. And then uh, you get to, like, these 20, 30-foot Pokemon. Yeah, it's a really, really weird dichotomy. But anyway, in all the games of Pokemon you've played, have to ask, which starter is your favorite? So I uh, I tended to play Generation 1 a lot more. I'm actually not even all that familiar with Generation 2, much less, you know, 3 through 5. Uh, so I'm going to pick one of those guys, some of the originals. Uh, Bulbasaur was my favorite, and it's I guess that's unusual. Like, I, I'm... I, I always tell people to pick Bulbasaur at the beginning, and they're all, like, confused. They're like, no, I'm definitely picking Charmander. Uh, no, I love Bulbasaur, uh, you know, Ivysaur, Venusaur. It's clearly the best. I don't even know why this is eight. And, you know, an interesting thing about Bulbasaur, Squirtle, and Charmander is that the way that they're numbered in the Pokedex actually is meant to delineate different levels of difficulty in order to start Pokemon. Because if you think about it, Bulbasaur is the grass type, uh, number one is the easy mode because the first two gyms are rock and water, both types against That's which Bulbasaur is strong. Yeah, Squirtle absolutely. is the medium mode because Squirtle is strong against rock and not against water. And Charmander is the hard mode because he's weak to both rock and water. That's some really, really smart programming by those Game Freak guys. Yeah. They do great work. I always tend to go with the water types for the most part. I always liked the Squirtle line. I always thought it was cool. But I also really liked the Cyndaquil, Quilava, Typhlosion line in Generation 2, partially because they were all honey badgers. And honey badgers <laughs> really just don't give a shit. 
And they were really strong, which was awesome. Who's your favorite Pokemon, period? That's tough because uh, it used to be Jigglypuff because I thought it was, like, kind of cool. Really? Um, and, you know, I mean, God I damn it, Arif. I said used to be. Um, but now I just, I don't know. I mean, like, it might be Venusaur just because I have, like, my fondest memories, like, kicking ass with Venusaur. Um, but I, I don't really have a favorite, because now when I play, it's, like, very min-max, like, oh, you should get, you know, Executor, because it's, like, surprisingly got a high special attack as both a Psychic and a Grass type. You know, that sort of thing, right? Um, I liked, you know, I like Gyarados a lot, uh, for pretty obvious reasons. Um, although it's not a Dragon type, it's so dumb. Um, and, uh, and, like, the, the Dragonair, Dratini, Dragonite line I liked a lot. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I haven't really, like, had a favorite ever since I started min-maxing Pokemon, which is, like, the dumbest thing to do, but that's how I enjoy games, so. I am a Nuzlocke player of Pokemon, that's how I enjoy Pokemon still. Jesus, man, Which means up. that you can only catch the first Pokemon you encounter on each route, and if a Pokemon faints, it dies, and you have to put it in your box and not use it ever again. It is a much more fun way to play Pokemon, I will say. I really enjoy it. And because of that partially... Have you ever lost your starter that way? I have. Because of that partially, my favorite Pokemon is one who carried me for much of a Nuzlocke. And it is Skarmory. The bird flying steel type. It carried me about, I would say, like, five gyms in the Elite Four when I was Nuzlocking SoulSilver. It was a really, really clutch Pokemon. Definitely came in for me, and I had named him, I'm trying to remember, I believe that was the Nuzlocke, that I named them all after Patriots players. So my starter was Brady, and then he died, which was sad. I believe that I named him Branch after Dion Branch. So, Branch the Scarberry, good for him. He was a really, really good Skarmory. What? Was that, like, was that before uh, Gronkowski? Did you, get any, did you get anybody you named Gronk? I think I, I named someone Gronk, but this was, like, 2013. So Dion Branch had just left the team or was, like, on his way out of the team. And so Skarmory was probably, like, the 15th or 16th Pokemon I caught. So I was running out of receivers, so I just named him Branch. And then all of a sudden he became a beast. And that was nice, because Dion Branch was so reliable for so many years in Foxborough. It was great. So I guess for the last question, if you had to build a team based on one type of Pokemon, which type of Pokemon do you think you would build your team out of? And this isn't just a strength thing, because honestly, you could take any Pokemon of any skill level for your team. I guess it's sort of, what type do you feel speaks to you the most? Speaks to me? Yeah. I I love the dragon type, but again, that's like for min-max reasons, because it's like very difficult to find, because I mean, they're weak to like ice and other dragon types, and it's very difficult to find those. Um, like, it's surprisingly difficult to find ice type Pokemon. Um, so, I kind of loved the dragon type, because it was like resistant to everything, weak to stuff that was hard to find. Um, and so that's how I thought of it, but speaks to me the most, I'd actually probably still have to pick, you know, Dragon-type, because, I mean, they're super cool, right? Uh, you know, I mean, I 
I like, obviously, like I said, the, the Dratini Dragonair uh, line. Um, I think that, what, what's the what's the Generation 2, like Bagon, Shelgon, you know, whatever. Yeah. Those are pretty cool. Um, yeah, when there were uh, Dragon Legendaries, that was really cool. Um, yeah, I mean, they can fly without having to be a flying type. I think that's cool, too. I would probably pick the Ice type, just because... First of all, that means I could beat you. And second of all, <laughs> I've always been a fan of Dugong. I've always been a fan of Pilliswine. I've always been a fan of Articuno, who would be mine because I would catch him and be best friends. Yeah. Dugong's I, tight, though. I, I'm gonna, I, like I love Dugong. Dugong is sick. Uh, one of my favorite, most underrated Pokemon. One of my favorites I didn't mention, actually, is Arcanine, who I think is supposed to be, like, Dugong's polar opposite. Oh, that would make sense. I always, I always got a Growlithe to turn into an Arcanine. I always like Growlithe. Although, I guess, you got Gra- Growlithe and Ninetales were sort of, like, parallels, but I think Growlithe and Dugong were supposed to be, like, opposites. But I yeah, always liked Arcanine, too. And that'll do it. So, Arif, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Hammer Time Podcast. It was a pleasure. Where can the people find you? Uh, usually on just Twitter, uh, at ArifasonNFL, um, and that's where, I, <laughs> that's where I post the links to, like, the 8 million websites I've written for. Uh, Daily Norseman's where sort of my more recent articles have gone up. Uh, I'm going to be accepting some job offers over the course of this year that, that I've received, so I'm going to be writing at some new websites soon, but I cannot disclose it. Um, so, really, it's just best to follow me at ArifasonNFL, uh, it was, it was awesome being on. I hope it was interesting. Oh, it was super interesting. I think that we're going to get a lot of thought-provoking responses. I hope that you all enjoyed. Definitely keep checking out the podcast. Give feedback. Tell me what you think. Next week, we'll have another great guest. And until then, signing off, have a great night.